Hey, In Context listeners, before we head into this episode, we wanted to let you know about a special promotion we currently have going on with Logos.com. As you may know, Logos is the Bible software that Michael uses every day in his personal Bible study, as well as to help him prepare teach. And right now, if you go to Logos.com, that's L-O-G-O-S.com forward slash in context, you can receive up to 15% on all of their items. This is a great deal and a great way to start your own personal Bible study and start accumulating resources that can help you as you become a student of the word. So again, that's logos.com forward slash in context, and you can save up to 15% on all items through December 24th. Over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Well, welcome to the broadcast. It is exciting to have Dr. David Lamb on the broadcast today. Um, When Hannah and I were putting together the uh, big book cover to cover series, we were uh, looking for subject matter experts, as you know, and uh, we're trying to find who, who can bring more to the table than I can in one sermon on a particular book of the Bible. Well, we quickly found Dr. Lamb's information uh, through our mutual love of Logos and uh, the Bible software. They have a mobile ed program, and uh, Dave Lamb teaches courses on there. And then we read his uh, CV, or for the rest of us, his curricula vitae, or do you say vitae? Either way. <laughs> if you're a Brit, you say Vitae. I say CV. I, I CV. say CV. Yeah, I don't but, typically say it. But then they think that's the pharmacy. Uh, CVS. Uh, yeah. Curriculum Vitae. Vitae. <laughs> he is the Dean of Faculty and the Alan McRae Professor of Old Testament at Missio Seminary, soon to be in Philadelphia proper. Dr. Lamb has extensive teaching experience, including cross-cultural projects in Nigeria, Mexico, Kazakhstan, and Russia. You're not an asset, are you? No, 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 no. Okay. I haven't been there. No, the place I've been to most recently <laughs> is Liberia. Um, okay. But uh, yeah, I like to travel. My wife travels more than I do, but um, wow. yeah, we love seeing what God's doing all over the planet. In July 2016, his co-authored text was released, The Historical Writings introducing Israel's historical literature. He has addressed the topic of confusing sexual behavior in The Bible in Prostitutes and Polygamists, a look at love, Old Testament style. We need to do a whole program on that, Hannah. Also, a book called God Behaving Badly, Is the God of the Old Testament Angry, Sexist, and Racist? And he's about to release a commentary on First and Second Kings through Zondervan. And on and I could go on your CV. It's about four and a half pages long. So for those that <laughs> want to know more about Dave Lamb, uh, we encourage you to do that. So all that to say, hey, thanks for giving us some time on the program. Michael, I'm very happy to be with you today. So um, 
First and Second Kings, the average Christian and the average pew and the average church go rolls their eyes on the monarchy books. And um, you and I have a love for the Bible, and we know studying this, it just opens up a you know an endless uh, stream of study. Let me ask a big question first. When you look at the First and Second Kings, give me your paragraph, your synthesis, your topic, uh, if you will, of how you approach these two books. Well, yes. I mean, first of all, we, we love Scripture um, because um, through Scripture we connect to God, and I think we see that um, in some different ways in the book of uh, First and Second Kings. I might just call it the book of Kings because the Kings was one book right. uh, initially, but in it we see this story. It's a 450-year story of Israel's attempt to establish a monarchy, and we see snippets of good kings. Um, Solomon starts well, um, ends badly. We see uh, Hezekiah um, uh, doing well and, and Josiah doing well, but generally it's a, it's a tragedy of how the people of Israel and their leadership um, fall into idolatry and fail to obey God. And it's, I, like, I talk about Kings, First and Second Kings is really it's a tragedy, but hopefully it's a tragedy that we can learn from, and we can learn from the mistakes of the people in the book of Kings. I appreciate you pointing out the 450-year time span. One of the things I've done in our book, to uh, the big book cover-to-cover -cover series, is talk about not dates as much as time span, because here we are in America yeah. coming up on, what is it, 243 years, and we think we're yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. And whether it's judges or <laughs> yeah. kings, you're looking at twice that almost, and yeah. and we're looking yeah. at a few pages. Uh, and you think yeah. of Western history. How how would you encapsulate you know this great American experiment? Anyway, just as a sidebar to remind us of God's sovereign plan and His providence yeah. and this broken, yeah. limping nation that He chose. Let let me ask you. Um, you you have a great syllabus on the mobile ed course, and I was going through there, going, goodness, we could do. Ten programs on these, um, but but a couple things that jump out to me. You mentioned it one already. Uh, Forty total kings in the monarchy. Is that correct? Um, yes. I mean, yeah, that's about right. I mean, it, you know, it depends on kind of how you. There's a few people that right. the text doesn't call a king Athaliah, but yeah, forty is about right. And how many of those did evil in the sight of the Lord, and how many did good? Do you remember? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, according to the text, um, I don't know, um, the southern kings, it's almost half do well. Among the northern kings, it's only it's only um, Jehu. So you've, I don't know, it's uh, less than a quarter of them. Um, and then uh, amongst the ones that do well, a lot of them don't even do really well. Right. So <laughs> there's just aren't many kings that do really well. Um, and a vast majority just do evil. Yeah, let's go. Let's go back to Samuel, and when the people want a king, and that terrible pay, the terrible passage, we want to be like other nations. Oi, oi, vey, right? And and he goes, yeah, no, yes. you don't want this. And G, and God tells yeah. him, you explain to them. He's going to conscript your children, yeah. your land, your provisions. Your, I mean, he's going to take your life away. No, we will be like yeah. other nations. And do you think the average Israelite Jew, uh, you know, the, the man or woman, uh, the family, do you think they understood the implications of wanting a king and then as they lived under this oppression and divided kingdom and battles, do you think they looked back on that with regret? Well, I'd like to hope they did. Um, uh, and the nice thing was, as we see 
from Saul, of Samuel's perspective, um, God told him, God spoke through Samuel and told him what was going to happen, and they can kind of look back and say, and God doesn't do that, I told you so, but that would be a big I told you so moment um, if, if he had come back and said that. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think on one level, the book of Kings, again, we're not exactly sure who wrote it down. We know who the authors were divinely inspired, but the book of Kings is a little bit of a like, well, yeah, God told us so, and this is what happened. So it, I think it is kind of a, a reflection, and there are probably a bunch of people involved that they are they are looking back and saying, yeah, that was a big mistake. And the thing is, the thing that's kind of mind-boggling, it's a little bit like the father in the story of the prodigal son. Why does the father give half his inheritance to the son? Well, sometimes God just allows his people, his children, in the case of the prodigal son, to make big mistakes. And God was willing to allow them to establish a monarchy. And he knew what was going to happen, and he told them what was going to happen. But sometimes people just need to be able to make those mistakes and hopefully learn from them. But, yeah, it's a, it's a sad story. This is a, a question I get often, uh, numbers. When we look at certain round numbers in the what I call the monarchy books, uh, Kings, Chronicles, Samuel. Um, g- give us your sense on rounding up inerrancy, uh, you know, differences of accounting from time to time. Yeah, I mean, that's always going to be a little bit tricky, um, you know, because obviously the Bibles that m- most Americans read are in English, um, but the Old Testament was not written in English, pretty much mainly Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic. And um, one of the things that people that know more about this than I do say is um, the word that gets translated as a thousand, aleph, um, so, you know, often means a thousand, but in some context it may mean, if it, you're talking military context, it may be talking about a company or a group, a little bit of how we talk about uh, a dozen or some or few or lots or scads or hordes. It may not necessarily have a strict literal sense that we um, understand it today. And so, um, you know, we're, we're reading a document that's thousands of years old. I, I think it's clear that some of those numbers are meant to be taken very literally and um, and represent actual numbers. But in other contexts, it can be a little trickier to determine, and maybe there is something that's uh, a rounded number going on, uh, which is what is meant to be represented. Um, and sometimes in terms of the, the size, like in uh, 2 Kings 19, Sennacherib, the Assyrian ruler, goes back to the capital um, of Assyria and Nineveh, and 185,000 of his soldiers were killed. Well, a lot of scholars think that that must be kind of a round number. That um, So, you know, we could talk more about that. But, yes, I think sometimes the numbers are rounded, and um, we just have to trust that the divinely inspired authors of Scripture got it right. But, again, there's a, there's a language gap there that sometimes doesn't make sense to us as well. So that can be a factor. So you bring up Sennacherib, and I presume you've been to the British Museum and seen the Sennacherib tablets. Yes. So uh, yes. you know, what I often... Yes tell our folks is I go, this is so interesting because number one, we have the enemy's record, the Assyrians record of what they did to the Jew. We have the Old Testament saying the same thing, but how many times would uh, the Assyrians record their defeats? 
whereas right. the Jew, in God's right. oversight of his scripture, uh, says, no, we're recording the good, the bad. You talk about behaving badly, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Right. And I, I find that yeah. remarkable uh, that the yeah. God of the universe is not affected by the consequence of sin and the depictions of them being staked out and the hooks in their jaws. Right. I mean, it's spellbinding to look at those tablets and go, this is what the Assyrians right. dug in rocks to prove their defeat over God's people. Yeah, and it, it is amazing, and it's it helpful to kind of go and look at the, the Lakish Palace res, uh, reliefs al- yes. along the wall in the British Museum, and, and you read that, and then you can make a little bit more sense of why, why Jonah was so reluctant to go to Nineveh, <laughs> exactly. because um, you could see what, what things that the, the Assyrians were doing um, when they came through the northern kingdom uh, and, and destroyed it. But the Assyrian records don't record what happened um, uh, in the way. And I think that one of the things that speaks to the truth of the Bible is just the the fact that it, it does, as you say, record the good, the bad, and the ugly. And um, Israel's people, Israel's story often makes them look bad. And I think that speaks to the authenticity of it, yeah. And uh, the stiff-necked people that he chose, I, I tell people, uh, I yeah. have my... Uh, neck is fused and i say i'm a i'm a stiff neck oh. gentile so you know i come by naturally <laughs> okay. um let's go to behaving badly so uh I- implying this i'm presuming because i have not been through your course when god tells uh israel to destroy a people group or god tells them to do something that is it just seems to go against our western sensibilities and especially if you're a pacifist god would never command that help us out it gets tricky. Um, and again, uh, you know, in my book, I, I, the title of it's God Behaving Badly, I tell people um, the full title is a question. Is the God of the Old Testament angry, sexist, and racist? Because some people just don't like the fact that I would even use that as a title. But <laughs> I'm, I'm saying there are places where he sure seems to behave badly. And one of the places that some people would say would be um, the the conquest of the Canaanites, the, the, the call to wipe out these people. Um, and that's a hard one. And whenever, and I get asked this question a lot. And whenever people ask me that question, I tell them, that's a tough question. And I think it's okay when we have tough questions to bring them to our brothers and sisters in Christ and certainly to pray about it. Um, the Psalms are full of, of tough questions that the psalmists ask God in the midst of their confusion. When it comes to the Canaanites, um, there's a couple different things that people can say, do say. I think some answers are better than others. Um, I mean, the, the quick answer that a lot of a lot of us are maybe used to is just saying, well, the Canaanites were punished for what they had done, and um, they were adulterers, and they were doing a lot of bad things, child, child sacrifice. Um, and I think that I think that's a that's certainly an argument that the text uses, um, and I think that's legitimate. Um, I think the text also does say that God. Well, one of the things is we read the story about the Canaanites, we realize that God shows mercy, even though the the punishment towards the Canaanites was pronounced of of death, that they were going to get wiped out. Um, Any Canaanites that showed mercy to the Israelites were shown mercy as well. And I think the most famous example is Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, who showed mercy to the Israelites, um, risked her life, really, 
to show mercy, and she was shown mercy by the Israelites um, in return. And in fact, as you, we read in Matthew's Gospel, the Rahab, the, Canaan, the Canaanite prostitute, is part of Jesus' family tree. Right. <laughs> so um, she really got welcomed into the nation of Israel, and I think a lot of it was showing hospitality, whereas the, the nations that did not show hospitality, the people, nations that did not show hospitality to the Israelites, um, were defeated, were wiped out. Um, in, in a lot of cases, the text just says they were driven out of the land. In fact, that's the analogy, the, the language that the text uses most in, um, in both in Deuteronomy and the book of Joshua, that the, the Canaanites were driven out of the land. But it is troubling, and there's, there's a lot of troubling texts, and I think um, as Christians we need to not avoid them, but we need to talk about them if we really do believe that all Scripture is inspired and profitable for teaching. One of the uh, answers that I've amalgamated over the years is uh, more of a, a theological grasp of whenever God, you know, when he tells uh, you know, Samus has destroyed the Amalekites completely, you know, don't leave any of them alive, and he disobeys. I love, hate that text where uh, Agag comes out, and he's kind of mocking Samuel, right. and Samuel takes right. a sword and hacks him to pieces. And I say, you know, it's one thing to kill someone in the heat of battle. It's another to kill a man in cold blood when you haven't been in a battle. Yeah. And to me, it yeah. accentuates a number of things. It goes back to the call of, this is what's going to happen if you have a king. And their whole thing was, I want you to be different than the nations. I don't want you to have a king like them. I want, I want to be your king. Yahweh wants to be your king. So if you are like them, you must separate from them because their pagan gods will influence you whether it's Molech, Chemosh, whatever, and, and with Solomon in particular. So to me, uh, and again, it may be, you know, God's punishing them. That's certainly viable. But what I kind of amend, and I like your opinion on this, these people weren't simply enemies. They hated Yahweh because he was a monarch that threatened their system. They, they, they hated Yahweh's people. They would have destroyed Yahweh's people. And if they didn't destroy them and were assimilated, then they would have turned into, you know, following the gods of Chemosh and, and Moab and the Asherah and right. so forth and so on. So to me, God and his, again, his sovereign providence bigger than we can comprehend. He knew that if those people were not dealt with, that his chosen people would be, you know, amalgamated, reduced. There'd be no remnant. So again, it, it's a little bit more of a theological lens than just looking at passages that seem so egregious. Uh, how could God, you right. know, command you to destroy everything? Um, take on that response, push back, disagree? I think that's generally valid. I think that we do need to um, think about the big picture and what are God's purposes here. Um, and I think, it, I would say, you know, even as we look at the text, we, we'd, we'd see texts that would say, um, you need to wipe out these Canaanites because otherwise you will start to worship their gods right. and they, you will become like them. And when the, the, the Canaanites that they did not um, either drive out or wipe out um, did have an impact. And so clearly what, was, what they were warned about happened. And I, so I do think that's part of it. And I think you, you kind of touch on this with the other, the other, your other comment that – we read this, these texts of the story of Joshua or you know, some of the descriptions of what's supposed to happen in Deuteronomy from our perspective, and then that's totally legitimate. We, we can't get out of our perspective, but we need to do a little bit of homework to try to understand the ancient Near Eastern perspective. And it, things, it was like the Wild West. 
um, you know, and you know, in our country, we can think of like, well, things in the Wild West. You know, if you insulted somebody, they would challenge you to a duel. Um, you know, that's just kind of where that doesn't happen today. You know, that would be illegal. But 100 years ago, and you know, 150 years ago, and out west, that would be pretty typical. And in the ancient world, there was battles and bloodshed, and civilizations would wipe out other civilizations. And there weren't really borders as we understand them today. And so people would just come in and take other territory. And so part of it was the world, the, the story of Joshua is not that uncommon in that context. God is always contextualizing how he works. The problem for us, though, is from our you know, 21st century sensibilities, we kind of, it, we're, we're troubled by it. But so we always have to think about the context. I think, as you say, we have to understand what would the Canaanites have been doing? What would the Canaanites have wanted to do to the Israelites? The other point I like to make is the Israelites were like refugees. They were, they ha they were people without a country, and they had been exploited and oppressed for hundreds of years in Egypt, and they needed a homeland. And they were, they were basically just going back to the, the land of their ancestors because Abraham, um, Abraham had the had Canaan as a homeland, and so they were just kind of returning home. But it, it's still troubling to me, uh, and so I, I think I think I like the the points you're sure. making, and they help to make sense of it. But ultimately, when it comes to some of these things, um, what what I can do is I can offer people arguments that can help make people understand it a little bit better. But at the end of the day, we might just need to say, God, I don't fully understand this, but I'm going to I'm going to trust you, yeah, I and I know. trust your word, and um, I'm going to keep praying and pray that you enlighten me. When we say ancient Near East, uh, tick off you know five or six things that would be um, like like the Wild West the illustration. What other things about the ancient Near East are we so far removed from? Uh, we would understand whether it's men and women, whether it's property, whether it's uh, you know the multiple wives. I mean, give give us some help at a high level. Sure. Doc. Wow. Yeah. There's there's a lot that could be said. You know, I think one right. of the things that people are sometimes appalled by is the laws or the rules or like even let's just take for example an eye for an eye, um, which we kind of think, oh gosh, if you know somehow I you know, pluck your eye, you, you pluck my eye out. That just seems so um, draconian. And, and Jesus has this enlightened sensibility in the, in the Sermon on the Mount when he comes along and says, well, you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye, but you know, uh, he says, Jesus, basically Jesus just says, turn the other cheek. Um, but in the ancient Near Eastern world, this eye for an eye and the, the um, um, scholars have a term for it, lex talionis, the, the law of retaliation, basically. But if you're not into Latin, you don't have to worry about that. There will be no test. Well, I um, use that all the time, so you're, you're doing this, good. <laughs> okay, great. The, the eye, eye for an eye, actually, in a world that they don't have a, a, a sophisticated legal system, um, what you would have is often you would have feuds. And, you know, in our country, we can think about the Hatfields and the McCoys, right? Your brother hurt my brother, so I come back and I don't just hurt your brother. Um, I kill your brother. And then, you're, then you're, you, you, your family comes back and slaughters my family. And then my family slaughters you, you and all your cousins. So we have, typically we'd have a law of escalation. Whereas in the ancient Near East, actually the eye for an eye 
um, would prevent the law, the, this kind of retaliation good, escalation. But it gives it's a real simple form of judgment and justice. So that's an example where it doesn't make sense to us. Well, we have a legal system where we can you know, put people that have commit, committed violent crimes and we put them in jail for 10 years or, or whatever the appropriate sentence is. They just didn't have that. And so an eye for eye is actually a form of justice, simple justice. So that's one example. Um, you, you talked about multiple wives. Um, and, you, know, what, you know, why did Abraham sleep with, you know, Hagar? And what about Jacob? And Jacob had Rachel and Leah and Zilpah and Bilhah. I mean, what's going on with that? And God worked through that. Well, um, in a world, well, in the world, there was a lot of warfare. There would often be a lot more women around than men. Um, in fact, I, I talked to my, some of my, my African friends about why they, they have polygamy, um, at least kind of in, in parts of, certain parts of Africa, um, particularly in areas that have been devastated by warfare. You have a lot more women around, and marriage was a way to provide for women. Um, and so a lot of times, I mean, you, you look at the story of, 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 um, of Jacob. Jacob just wanted to be married to Rachel. He didn't want polygamy. He, you know, um, Leah was kind of forced on him, and then Rachel and Leah both kind of forced their um, their maids upon him. He just wanted to be married to Rachel, but it was a way for Jacob and Jacob's greater family to provide for a larger number of people. And polygamous contexts um, in in a world where they don't have social security and they don't have the safety nets that we have today were a way to kind of provide for people. So um, I'm giving you longer answers, no, um, but that's just two examples that kind of help shed light on the ancient Near Eastern world that, um, you know, we do our homework and, and it can help us make sense of these texts that just seem really weird to us. Uh, our, I don't know if you know, uh, Alan Ross, Dr. Ross was uh, um, my Hebrew sure. professor back at Dallas Seminary 100 years ago, and um, Dr. Ross yeah. was... Uh, I, I could be wrong on this, and this is digging back 30-plus years, but when we talked about Lex Talionis and Talent Justice, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, wound for wound, um, he made the comment, again, if memory serves, that we don't have a record of the execution of such being conducted. And, right. and he said, yeah. so not yeah. that it didn't, but he's saying uh, perhaps there was more of a capital punishment was a prevention law. You know, if you yeah, do that, you're yeah. going to die. And so obviously the accidents in the Levitical codes and laws were much more sure. understandable if you, you know, if your neighbor's ox gores you, et cetera. But when it came to uh, uh, killing, uh, of course, we have the cases where God commands and, you know, swallows the tribe of Korah or whatever. But in, in the mainstream, we don't have these records of, you know, okay, this injury right. happened and you go injure another person. And to the point of David with uh, Uriah, and Bathsheba, and this writing of Psalm 51. You know, there there is no provision of the law. I, I can't, there's no eye for eye here. The eye for eye here is to kill me. Yeah. And yeah. so in Psalm 51, he, uh, else I would give it. If there was a sacrifice appropriate, I would give it. There yeah. is no sacrifice for this. Yeah. And I, again, your take on that, because do we have in any of the monarch books a record of any of Lectalianus or... Um, um. None jumped to mind off the top of my head. Yeah. I think uh, so. I, I think that's a great point. I mean, the, I mean, to put it in New Testament language, 
the wages of sin are death. But right. fortunately, God, you know, well, this is one of the things when I teach Genesis 2, um, when God says to the humans, uh, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the, the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat of it, you will die. Well, they eat of it, and they don't technically die that day. Now, you could, we could argue that, yes, the process of death has begun, but on one level, you could argue that, God showed mercy to them. They deserved death instantly that day. But even in the Garden of Eden, God was showing mercy to them from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and yes, they did, you know, the process of death did begin. But God is always showing, I mean, we get shocked with um, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts, or we get shocked about um, poor Uzzah, who tried to stabilize the ark in, in 2 Samuel 6, these, these moments where God kind of breaks through and, and instantly gives death. But the thing that, that shouldn't shock us, because if we really do believe that the wages of sin are death, what should shock us is all the times that we sin and God doesn't. That any of us are still alive. <laughs> the, the fact that any of us are still alive is really the thing yeah. that should be the most shocking. And I just think that we, we kind of get that backwards. We, we presume upon the grace of God because he, he is so merciful. And yet there will be a time of judgment. Yeah, so I, I don't see examples recorded of, of this kind of eye-for-eye judgment. And, you know, again, like you said, not that it didn't happen. I just don't see um, clear examples. Yeah, we don't have a record. Yeah. Again, it's just an interesting observation. One of your units in the mobile ed course caught my attention, Elisha's early ministry, Elisha, the boys and the bears. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and that's such a great story. So, 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 so give us Dr. Lamb's uh, synthesis and uh, some points about the story. Sure. Okay. So, um, for those of you who are less familiar with the story, um, Elijah, the the great prophet, um, has just got caught up in a whirlwind, and Elisha, his mentor, um, is he's t- taken up the, the mantle of his mentor, and he's starting out his ministry, and he he purifies the water from this town in Jericho, and on his way out of town. Um, some young kids from the town start making fun of him, taunting him. Go, you know, go up, go away, baldy. Go. They call him baldy. Um, my sons like baldy. to come up behind, <laughs> behind my head and rub my bald spot, and and they go, go up, baldy, go up, baldy. And I always say, hey, where are the she bears when you need them? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, but he he, Elisha the prophet curses uh, the boys in the name of the Lord, and then two she bears come out of the woods. And attack these boys, and you know, depending on how you talk, who you talk to, or who you're reading, they people say, well, you know, these these two bears killed these boys, um, and that's a possibility. I think that's pretty unlikely. Um, it's it's a troubling story, but the way I I make sense of it a little bit is that well, the language does not require uh, it, it was it was violent, but um, there are a couple other places in the Book of Kings where we know wild animals, um, lions particularly, um, attacked somebody and killed somebody. And there's no record of a, yes. of a death here. And if you think about it, just logistically, how do, you, how do two bears kill 42 boys? 
Um, it's almost like they have to get in a line and like, you know, you know, you know, they, you know, take a number and then we'll get you in a minute. You know, there's a, you know, that doesn't make any sense. There was, it was, there was violence and it is troubling. But, um, I think the thing that makes the most sense to me here was Elisha has just done a great work for this city, um, the city of Jericho, saving the lives of the people there and what these kids are doing and some people think they were young boys i don't think that doesn't make any sense to me to you know this is not a preschool um out by themselves in the wilderness where there are she bears this is a this is probably a teenage gang and um and it's you know we've all heard stories of groups of teenagers attacking um elderly people and uh and 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 doing some serious damage and if you read what's going on in kings in this particular portion of the bible prophets have been getting killed prophets have been going through a really hard time so in this case god decides to send she bears and um in and in, in protecting elisha's life and i'm still kind of troubled by the story but um, it's not as troubling for me to think of uh, a teenage gang going after an old guy and God getting their attention by sending them some, some she-bears. And these guys got roughed up a little bit, and hopefully they learned their lesson. It, it perhaps, and again, you're, you're the expert, but my my, my uh, inclination on that text is, and you've been, I presume you've been to Israel, as I have many times, and when you go to Mount Carmel and the surrounding forests and the, the lush nature yeah. and uh, wildlife that's there, uh, it seems to me this could have happened over time. Sure. So if you had sure. this gang of, let's say, 20-something marauders that were uh, sort of troublemakers and they're giving the prophet a hard time, that it didn't necessarily, you know, I remember the old John Salmon parody video where they, you remember that video where they're catching the salmon in the Alaska waters and this guy goes up and tries to steal the fish and the, the uh, bear does a little judo thing oh, yeah. <laughs> and gets the fish back from the guy. <laughs> so we can't, we can't you know, envision that being silly, but, but it seems to me if you lived in that area, it was a forested area, very lush with, yeah. with uh, 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 olive trees and produce and wildlife, that over time uh, these two bears could have caused trouble. Yeah. And so, you know, again, I, that's yeah. a lot of uh, uh, yeah. su- supposition in the text. But this goes back to my question of rounding numbers. Sometimes we, I think, we strain it too hard and say, "There's a likely explanation." Maybe, maybe you're right. They yeah. weren't killed or torn. Uh, but when I read tore up 42 lads of their number, their group, and like you said, a gang, perhaps. Um, and then he goes to Mount Carmel. So, so who knows? But, but my my point simply is, I, I think we need to. Uh, to bow to the text as opposed yeah. to our, as you said, and I've said sensibilities, we get, well, I, I, when people say to me, I can never believe in a God who, and I right. stop him and I go, wait a minute, before you finish that sentence, you've just made God in your image. Yeah. Right. If, if you and I say, I can never believe in a God who allows AIDS, you've yeah. just said, uh, your view of God would be, there wouldn't be disease. Well, that's an interesting view. Let's talk about that. But to say you can't believe in the sovereign uh, creator's center of the universe who provides uh, a solution to your sin problem, you couldn't believe in him because of your, you know, human finite view of something that's unjust or let's just say the story is unreasonable or fantastic or couldn't have happened. 
Um, and again, that's where we we don't revere the Bible as a, a, an idol, but it's the Word of God. Yeah. And yeah. we need to understand, as you pointed out, ancient Near East was a long time ago. Traditions, uh, and again, uh, anyway, I, I'm prattling, but I, I just think some of these stories, um, we, we, we feel like we have to rescue, you know, them. Right. right. As opposed to, hey, I don't understand it all, but as best as I can from a linguistic from a geographic, from yep. the time it was written, what we know of the culture, as you mentioned with Jonah, he didn't want to go to Nineveh for good reason. Right. Uh, you know, it, it helps us at least get a better grip on, hey, I'm not God, and I don't know every nuance of the real story that wasn't recorded, so let me just trust the Word and say I can't understand it all, but I still believe yeah. God's Word to be true. Yeah, I, I think that's really good, and I think that what... I'm trying to give the, the students in my classes or when I teach on this at churches and other places is I'm trying to get people, I'm trying to give them some help, but also just be able to say, you know, it's great to, to, to keep struggling with this. And um, sometimes, sometimes you will come up with some really solid answers and other times you'll just struggle and have to kind of be honest about that. It's okay. It'd be okay for Christians to be a little bit more humble. I, uh, about what we yeah, understand think? in Scripture. Yeah, <laughs> I think that would be an okay thing. Um, Christians okay. generally are not It's perceived. okay to say I don't know, yeah. Uh, okay, let me ask you two kind of juxtaposed questions. Uh, the sins of Jeroboam, the sins of Jeroboam, the sins of Jeroboam. Uh, boy, we can't miss it. And then uh, I want to get your take on King Josiah. Um, we've got this almost polar opposites. Give us sort of a, a Dr. Lamb's... Uh, you know, opinion, theory, conclusions on these two characters. Yeah, Jeroboam was the the the, the first. He was the king that kind of rebelled from um, Rehoboam. Rehoboam was um, Solomon's son, and so Jeroboam was the one that started the northern kingdom of Israel. He broke off uh, and and started the the northern kingdom. But one of the first things he does is he establishes. Um, uh, a golden calves, um, both in the northern part of Israel up in Dan, um, and in one in the southern part of Israel down in Bethel, um, because he didn't want the northern kingdom, the people in the northern kingdom, to have to go all the way down to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices. And you know, it sounds like a good idea. He certainly has a rationalization for it. But you think about this: he's building golden calves. Now, wait a minute. I, Golden calves. I've heard of golden calves somewhere before. Oh, somewhere right. back there. Right? Yeah, Mount Sinai. Um, back in Exodus 32, that was not a good thing. Um, that that led the nation, you know, right as they had been should have been, you know, celebrating God's deliverance from the land of Egypt, 400 years of oppression. They they developed they built these golden calves and worship it, which and God told them no other no other gods. No other gods before me. And it's like one of the first things they do. And Jeroboam repeats that, except he doesn't do it once, he does it twice, both in the northern kingdom, uh, the, the, the northern part of the capital and the southern part of the capital. And you know what? None of the northern kings got rid of those. Um, so, you know, back in Exodus, Moses tore up the, the golden calves that um, Aaron um, said just magically jumped out of the the fire, which is kind of hilarious. But it, that was destroyed. But Jeroboam's um, northern uh, golden calves 
survived pretty much until the end of the Northern Kingdom. And so um, when, as you're reading through the Book of Kings, you read this refrain, but he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam. Or they, um, There's a couple different ways that that gets framed. But basically, that's basically saying that none of these northern kingdoms, none of these northern kings tore these down as they should have. Um, and then, you know, we finally get to the end, um, and the northern kingdom has been wiped out by the Assyrians. And... Um, you know, just Josiah comes and uh, tears them down. Finally, um, uh, in in two Kings twenty three, he kind of cleans up um, Jeroboam's mess. Um, so Josiah was a good king. He was a reforming king, and he he uh, he was a king of the northern the southern kingdom, and he did a lot of great things. Um, but um, he still had his problems. But he was he was uh, of the southern kings. He was one of the best, and. Um, he really had a heart after God, and uh, he was he's someone that we can look up to. So when you take the high level of uh, first and second kings, if we want to limit it to that, or sure. just again this whole monarch period, uh, what, what what's our takeaway? What's the the average Christian and the average church who's sweating a mortgage and raising kids and maybe a single mom and maybe uh, you know college kids who are worried about student loans and finding a husband or a wife or gender issues or you know the average person the average pew who's who's consumed with the horizontal uh maybe a little bit too self uh focused and uh dr lamb says when i look at the books of the monarchy and the failure and the divided kingdom uh this would be my my sort of takeaway my encouragement my challenge yeah well again um if we want sort of the good the good news we can we can look at young solomon we can look at uh righteous jehu we can look at righteous tr- trusting hezekiah or trusting josiah and i think we've got four kings that in in different times in their life do really well and they love god they pursue god solomon asks god for wisdom what a great thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a takeaway that we can, we, you, you know, that's what James says, right? If any of you lack wisdom. So I think like young Solomon, we can be always asking God for wisdom. I think that's, that's a great lesson. Um, basically, Jehu and um, Josiah and Hezekiah were all people that were prophetic and they were they spoke up against the idols and they came up against idolatry and I think that's uh, another great lesson. What are the idols of our culture? How do we not bow down to them um, and 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 give in to them? You know, um, money, sex, power. Um, I don't know, success, attraction, appearance. All these things um, uh, are things that we can be um, viewing as idols. And I think that that looking at these kings, they, they speak against the idols of our culture. Um, and then the, the, the kind of the final lesson I might say is just, um, you know, we could look at the end of Solomon's life. Few leaders finished well. I had, a, I had a seminary professor who always used to say, Bobby Clinton, he talked about few leaders would fin- finish well. And I think for those, I'm, 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 you know, in a couple of years I'll turn 60 and I'm thinking, okay, what are the next 20 years of my life going to be? And um, how, how do, what I want to characterize them, and um, it's sobering to think about as wise of a guy as Solomon was uh, in his latter years of his life. 
he turned away from God and um, and basically become a, became apostate. And and that's just a really sobering message for me. And I think that's something we always need to be thinking about. And I think the Book of Kings um, offers a warning. Uh, that even kings that start out pretty, I mean, even Hezekiah had some problems um, late in his life, and so, so does Josiah. But even good kings can do bad things as, if they forget God and kind of drift away and don't pursue him with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Dr. David Lamb, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your uh, your time today, your contributions, and uh, we'll have to get you back on uh, the podcast here in the not-too-distant future. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.